plot twists, we're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Welcome back to a new series of Plot Twists. It's a new series, there's new music, and now TV is just now. I know, we've only gone and got ourselves a new name, so welcome everyone <laughs> to the new now. And it's a really, really exciting first episode because we're actually going to be talking about all things Bridget Jones. Yes, our guest this week is Bridget's sassy, sweary sidekick, Shazza, played by the lovely Sally Phillips. Some of you may know Sally from roles such as Tilly and Miranda. She was the creator and she starred in the iconic sketch show Smack the Pony, been at Alan Partridge, and then more recently she's played Mina, the Finnish Prime Minister in Veep. She's done quite a bit. But, I mean, let's just go back to Bridget here. I mean, it's the 20th anniversary of the first film coming out, which blows my mind slightly, but equally I don't really remember a time when Bridget Jones wasn't in my life. I think we've we've both (laughs) talked about this, Tom, like the epitome of being single, there are always times when you can say the, I've just had a bit of a Bridget moment. Like it's become part of just everyday language. And Shazza is just such a great character. So she's part of obviously one of Bridget's little posse of friends. She's that character in the group, which is the straight talker, say it as it is. And as you alluded to, Tom, uh, rather explicit language. So we won't be quoting any of her famous lines in the intro to the podcast. And as we say, it's been 20 years since Bridget Jones' diary first came onto our screens. And you can watch it on now. Yes, from the blue soup to the fight scene outside the restaurant, let's cast our minds back 20 years to relive this absolute rom-com classic and also hear about some of Sally Phillips's own plot twists from a really varied and exciting career. So here it is. Sally Phillips on the Plot Twist podcast. Well Sally welcome to Plot Twist. Thank you very much for having me. Obviously you're here to talk about Bridget Jones and we've got plenty of questions to ask but uh, before we do how are you? Are you are you feeling optimistic that we're in spring and that June is approaching? I'm feeling completely feral. I badly need a haircut and a beautician. (laughs) I'm desperate. I'm so over nature, I can't tell you. The other day we were saying, let's go for a walk in the park. It's like, I don't want to go to the park. I want to go to a really horrible shopping centre full of people (laughs) and spend loads of money on marshmallows and shoes that don't fit. You know, I think at one stage I was feeling very sort of climate emergency and, you know knitting my own porridge and all the rest of it and I just I don't know it's just I'm I've lost it I've properly lost it there's only so much you can do really isn't there it's even worse with dating as well but enough of my woes we've got a few questions set up that uh are kind of designed to get to know you obviously everyone will know you from Miranda from Veep Alan Partridge Bridget Jones of course but for those that don't know you we've got a few sort of nuggets that we thought we'd drop in yeah, we just like to ask a bit of a, a random question to get us started. So the one that we've chosen for you is, what is the most memorable gift that you've ever been given? 
Wow. And I'm, of course, because I've got slight ADHD brain, I'm just suddenly obsessed with your surname, Francesca Kitsch, and I'm wondering how it's been going through life being called Francesca Kitsch, whether that's worked for you or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the tongue teaser, isn't it? Lots of C's, lots of K's. Yeah. I mean, I know you need an S in there to really go for it, but um, it's a fantastic <laughs> name. Well, my mum wanted me to be a Frankie, and that would have really been a problem with Frankie Kitsch. That's, that's far too many K's for anyone's liking. <laughs> K is a favourite letter of comedians. It's a favourite sound. Is it? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, it's good for a joke, good for a punchline to have a, a good K in, give you a bit of a kick to push off. But anyway, enough of that. Oh, I love that. <clears throat> you were asking about my... <laughs> was it my favourite or my most random gift? The most memorable gift you've ever had. Well, I've obviously forgotten all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of ungrateful bitch that I am. Uh, I mean, I you know, I, I love things from the kids. I and mean, they gave me a Valentine's Day box, which was a wooden box that they'd painted themselves and was full of love hearts. And they'd tried to make candles unsuccessfully and full of drawings they'd done and all the rest of it. That was pretty memorable. Obviously... Very sentimental. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I am quite sentimental. Um, I That's obviously really I remember you know presents where my brother gave me some hardwood about thirty years ago, <laughs> like bits of hardwood in like you know non-specific shapes, and he said, "Yeah, I thought you'd like those." <laughs> I was like, "Why? <laughs> Why would I like those?" Like. What? I don't understand. What made you think that I would like those? What, are, what even are they? And my worst ever present was my 39th birthday. My husband, now my ex-husband, <laughs> for reasons that will become apparent, gave me a bottle of supermarket bubble bath and a, an onion dicer. What? And oh, wow, an onion dicer. An onion dicer. And I, I, I didn't cry that day, but about two days later, I was like, this is just unbelievably bleak, you know. If this were, is this my is this my life? Where my husband's my husband gives me some Sainsbury's bubble bath and an onion dicer for my birthday. I really enjoy though that although the the gift of the wood may have seemed pointless, it has in fact made it onto the podcast, and maybe that was always the intention. It would always be a good talking point of random gifts that you've had. Maybe, but I think what it did was it highlighted the fact that my brother and I had grown apart. <laughs> And that we needed to put that right. He needed to know that I was not the kind of person who would really love a two centimetre long piece of hardwood um, for my birthday. Um, though when I say the word hardwood, I can think of lots of ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, I've got one more for you. So obviously we've all spent, as you say, a lot of time indoors and we've been watching a lot of TV. If you could pick a member of any sitcom TV family and be part of that family, which family would you pick? Any TV family. Wow. Any TV family. I was thinking I'd quite like to be one of the Dumphys in Modern Family because I'd really like Phil Dumphy to be my dad. Yeah, and that's why that has been such a successful sitcom, because people really want to be in that family. But you've given me the option of any sitcom family ever, and I'm thinking, could I be in... Does the Adams Family count? Is that sort of... Yeah, There must be it. some animated sitcom version. I'd definitely want to... I mean, Modern Family feels like it's, you know, not that far removed, apart from they're way wealthier. <laughs> 
So I'd like to experience something really, really outlandish and out there. Yeah. I love that. Great answer. Yeah, I was thinking maybe like Only Falls, but I'd be, I'd be, I'm too posh to be a trotter. Really? No, I mean it would be fun to be in one in one of the just like a different a different world. Listen to me going <laughs> get me out of my house. That's basically what I'm saying. Every answer is <laughs> let me out. The only sitcom I wouldn't want to be in is Porridge. That's like the one st- I now know after lockdown that I don't want to go to prison if at all possible. <laughs> yeah, but you get to hang out with Ronnie Barker. I I know what I'd like to be in. I'd like to be in Blackadder, Queen Elizabeth. So, yeah, very solid shout. I mean, talking of comedy, actually, uh, you, your journey into comedy, you, you obviously travelled a lot when you were younger, uh, very young, and then you end up at Oxford studying Italian and linguistics. Is that right? Yeah. How does that then, you know, you go from that into, you know, going into comedy? Where, where was the point at which you discovered that was a passion that you wanted to explore? Well, you know, the good thing about Oxford from my, or one of the good things about Oxford from my perspective was you know, obviously the people, but the fact that there's no drama course means that absolutely anyone can do drama or comedy. So I I believe that at other universities, the drama students mainly do the drama, and it's quite hard to get involved, whereas at Oxford really anyone could do it, and anyone did. So I did lots and lots and lots of plays, particularly in my second year. I mean, there's one term where I did a a different play every single week, which... Yeah, it's just a bit like, because my generation didn't really get to do rep, which I think is a brilliant way of learning. So in the repertory companies, they would do a different play every week. So you'd be rehearsing one and performing one all the time, and they would change every week or every two weeks. And you just get very good very quickly. Now, obviously, I wasn't doing it professionally, it was just as a student, but you know, it did give me lots of experience of going on stage and lots of experience of trying to try different characters. But I really wanted to be a serious actor. And I auditioned for the Oxford Review. I didn't know what it was. My friend was going out with the director. And I'd done a one very pretentious one-woman show, although there <laughs> were more pretentious one-woman shows around at that time. I did one called Benedetta, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy. And <laughs> I played all the nuns. And it was a true story of Benedetta who pretended to have dialogue with angels so she could seduce the younger nuns, but was eventually found out by the counter-reformation. And despite giving herself her own stigmata and stabbing herself in the stomach, was discovered. And um, <laughs> So I, I, played, yeah, I played all these characters. But I got into the Oxford Review and um, really hated it. So it was me and three boys, and the whole show was written by one of the boys, and the characters I was playing were Billy, Sergeant Goopdink, Charlie, the General. So I was playing all men. <laughs> and they had us wearing suits. And at one point I had a kind of fit and I went, listen, you know, I want to do more than just go to the shop and get you stuff. <laughs> I'm, you know, I may be a girl. I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the mind of an idiot. And I do... <laughs> I can do this and they thought it was hilarious and they put my speech pretty much word for word in the show and so that didn't make me like comedy anymore but then once I left university deciding to be an actor I was doing physical theatre sort of Teatro de Complicité type stuff and well sub Teatro de Complicité but Teatro de Complicité wannabe stuff and so I'd be you know a character from a 19th century French novel 
in the afternoon um, dying of syphilis. And then at the Edinburgh Festival, I'd run across town, put on a boob tube and flares and um, just to do them a favour, would play the female parts in the stand-up shows. So I did Ra Ra Rasputin, Richard Herring's comedy biography of Rasputin the Monk, set to the words and lyrics of Boney M. And I did um, like walk-on parts for loads of people, do like three or four shows in Edinburgh, but only one was my serious bit where I was crying and dying of syphilis and maybe cartwheeling as well in the first 10 minutes. And no one would come and see that, couldn't get any agents to come and see it, but uh, comedy was very easy for people to come. And, they would... and so gradually, um, partly because the opportunity, opportunity went that way, and partly because I began to realise I was just a very average actor, I ended up in comedy. Well, I don't, I'm not sure I quite believe that last bit, but... It's, um, I mean, it's, it's very diverse, isn't it? And, and in many ways, your career has been that, um, where, you know, you've small screen, big screen, comedy, serious, radio, hosting, presenting. What environment do you feel most at home at? What, what do you enjoy most? Well, I, like, I really like people. So I'm happy at any environment where I'm meeting people. But I really like doing films um, because I really like that form of the story that ends. So a character that changes... Because in sitcoms, the characters don't really change. They just, they have to stay the same. And it's a kind of lockdown hell. <laughs> <laughs> if it's successful. Um, but with a movie, you start and you're, you know, you're exploring a particular question or a particular story and it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And um, I just really like that form. And also because it's a shorter form, there's, usually an inordinate amount of care goes into it. So you really think about, you know, your character may only wear three outfits or four outfits, so you really think about what each item of clothing says or does and how it interacts with the set, what colour the set is, and, you know, you're becoming part of it. It's just, I, I find it a really exciting collaborative art form. And I like the fact that you go slowly. You build into the story. Yeah, you're not... You're, well, no, not really that. It's just you You really try really hard and do it to the best of your ability. Whereas a lot of stuff in telly, I guess you're just catching it on the run. And you can get a real energy with that. I mean, I've done, I've done some work in Sweden and they have this thing there where you always measure... Every, how serious is your podcast? Are these the right kind of answers? Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture. No, we it's can. We, interesting. We, we, no, it's really interesting. It's a mixture, of course. So yeah, so in Sweden they have this thing where they measure twice, and um, everything's very, very careful, and it means that you can lose a sort of dynamic energy because things can get becalmed. But the other end of the spectrum is where you're guerrilla shooting, or TikTok, I guess, where it's all it's all energy and no finesse, and so you know, I I, I definitely pr prefer the the first. I'm very comfortable in Sweden. I like, you know, I like trying hard. That's the, what a sentence. But I do work there and I... I what a statement. Yeah, I'm very comfortable in Sweden. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's because there's lots and lots of care and no-one's ashamed of having taken care. Whereas I think here there can be a thing of, what, this old thing? There's a whole thing where actors say, same perf, different wig, darling. So everyone's very... You know, we put ourselves down a lot. But I don't know. I, I should, yeah. 
Yeah, we're, we're talking of films. Obviously, a big feature is uh, that can be is a, is a plot twist. Um, I, thought, I hope you like that little segue there. Um, Very strong. In terms of if your career, something that we like to ask is, you know, what, what would be your plot twist? You know, what would be your plot twist moment? If it was there something that stood out that perhaps changed your own story, could you name a standout? Well, I think that you have, as I'm sure you're aware, you have to have a number of twists in every film. And, you know, each act has its own set of reversals. But, I mean, definitely the biggest one for me, I think, was and it doesn't sound like it's a career one, but it has been a career one, uh, is uh, having children and my eldest having Down syndrome. Mm. That's, that's been the biggest thing because it had a huge impact on which jobs I could... I mean, just have, being a mum, I think, full stop, has that's a huge really. impact on what jobs you can and can't take. So suddenly you're not taking theatre, any theatre at all, because you're home in the evenings, you don't want to travel outside London much. And I just went into this whole new world of disability and learning about that. So that was a massive plot twist. And I think the last thing I did before I had Ollie was Bridget Jones 2. So, oh, wow. in fact, it was because I was pregnant with Ollie in Thailand. And the premiere, I had just given birth. So that was the last job. That was the last job I did. And it really feels like a new chapter happened after that, as it does for so many people. I mean, it's really pretty complicated having a baby as an actor because it's not like there's any maternity leave or anything like that mm. and your concerns really change I imagined I was never going to be able to leave my house again and that I was going to be at home I don't know what I thought I don't know what I thought my life was going to be like with Ollie and actually it hasn't changed you know it, obviously it has changed but it hasn't been what I, I, I my worst imaginings were that I was never going to be able to leave home again I thought I would better become a screenwriter so I'd always written, obviously I've written a lot of Smack the Pony. I was one of the core six writers for that. And, you know, uh, but I, I started going, OK, I've got to write features now. So I started doing that. And that gave me a massive... I mean, it's been brilliant to, to be in control of your own destiny, to some extent. That's what writing has done. So up to that point, just if I was cast, I was cast. And I did, you know crazy live work. Some of my favourite was with Simon Munnery and Stuart Lee. Uh, we had a thing called Klub Zarathustra, which was a live, mental, live cabaret show. So after that, I started writing more seriously and take, you know, taking smaller parts. I thought at that point, I thought, OK, I've been doing big parts in big things. I'll just do small parts in big things. But it turned out that you couldn't do that. You, the, pe the small parts and big things go to the people who've got big, big parts and small things. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes. I made a terrible wrong turn and ended up one year, one very bleak year, the only work I got offered was Shane Ritchie's ex-wife twice. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh no. So I'd spent the whole year doing voiceovers for uh, Summerfields and turning down Shane Ritchie's ex-wife. Like, not even Shane Ritchie's <laughs> wife, like Shane Ritchie's ex-wife twice. And at that point, my agent said, darling, I think it's time to do Strictly. <laughs> and I was like, OK, now it's time to change agent. So I changed agent. And I started taking, again, more control of my own career, writing more stuff, producing more stuff. I imagine the anticipation at the time must have been, you know, the anticipation is always worse, isn't it, I think? Of Ollie's um, disability. The, well, then I suppose the reality that you, yeah. that you say. I think the other thing is that Ollie's just hilarious. And so it was a whole new comic idea for me. 
I mean, Ollie's just every single thing he says is hilarious. And so as a comedian, you're going, how, how are you doing that? And what does that mean? So it's a whole new worldview to come to grips with. I mean, he tells all these jokes which don't make any sense at all and people always die laughing. And if I tell you them, I don't think you'll laugh because it sort of has to come from him. And so it made me rethink what funny was in a way. Yeah. And, and look at how much of funny is to do with relationship and not to do with the actual joke. Um, it's like a lot of great comedies, though, isn't it? I think often it is, uh, it's the writing, but also it's the character that you fall in love with, isn't it? So that even if the punchline delivery isn't so classic, it's still funny because it's coming from that, that character, that person. And it's, it's how they make you feel, I think. I mean, I remember Absolutely. being in the, on the train on the way back from watching Miranda Hart at the O2. So and I don't know how many people fit in the O2, but tens of thousands of people at the O2. A lot of people. Yeah, and... <laughs> I love Miranda and, and, you know, and it was funny. It was a good night out, but it wasn't like an all-time classic comedy show. But I was watching these three generations all reading through the programme together on the train away and thinking, I, I was like, I'm so stupid. It was never about the jokes. It was always just, comedy was, is always about how you make the people feel. And so, you know, giving vent to a particular feeling that people want to get rid of and with this you know with Miranda I think it's about wanting to bond you know saying you're all right I mean really it's mm. the same as Bridget Jones um you're okay exactly as you are I love you just as you are you don't have to be productive or um have a facial or do jiu-jitsu or acquire any <laughs> skills or do any massive open online courses on future learn or you know you don't need to do anything to be acceptable and your, your time with your mates doesn't have to be productive. You can literally just piss about and pretend an aubergine is called Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty productive to me. <laughs> I don't know, I think it's really important. I think just because it doesn't, I don't know. And I think this is the thing I've been grappling with ever since Ollie was born is, you know, Ollie is never gonna score on any official score sheet. He's not going to be productive. He's going to be a net drain if you're working in, you know, in terms of pounds and pence. But, you know, at the same, and this just sounds like a mother brag, but it, it isn't because it's not just Ollie, but the value that he brings to the family and the school and the community is just vast. And it's all mm. this relationship. Connection. And the joy of not being productive. The joy of being a bit, going, yeah, you know, don't understand and that's all right. I don't, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean anything and that's all right. And I can't speak Mandarin, and that's all right. And I can't sing, but I love it. And so I'm just going to do it, and that's all right as well. It's the whole sort of, it, it's all right, it's all right. It's okay, don't stress, it's okay. It's like you say with Bridget Jones, it's just the way you are. Just the way you are, exactly. And that's quite profound, isn't it, with Bridget Jones, about the, um, you know, all this trying to self-improve, trying to stop smoking, trying to eat less, trying to be more acceptable, trying to read a self-improving book, trying to impress your boss, trying not to sleep with your boss, accidentally sleeping with your boss. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> all of the above, you know, all of the above. And it's the vulnerability you identify with. And I think, obviously, speaking of Bridget Jones, how on earth has it been 20 years since the first film came out? Yeah, well, I was saying earlier that um, we did all of that 
five years ago with the third film. It's like, how on earth is it 15 years? Is it really 15 years? That's so weird. So I'm not surprised it's 20. Does it feel like ages ago, but also only yesterday at the same time? Yeah, I mean, she's so good. The, the, the main three are so, so good. It um, transcends its era, I think. I think it's one of those, you know, like, you know, we look back and watch the black and white films like Philadelphia Story and it happened one night and go, oh, it was so romantic. And um, just feel better, even though we've never really experienced that. Even though lots of the things that happen to Bridget are dating. I think the sort of warm, fuzzy feelings and the ups and downs mm. remain the same. I think definitely the points that you spoke about of being people who that feeling of striving to be the the most perfect form of whatever perfect means all the time but actually the story ending that like you say she finds peace and happiness exactly as she is and obviously you playing Shazza one of the group of friends I think even that dynamic of that friendship group is just timeless and people can just always relate to that and those different characters within the group yeah also, I mean, it looks just normal, but I think a group of friends where you actually listen to and take each other's advice is not that common. Perhaps not that directly. Yeah, I'm not sure it is that common. And I think that original, I think part of the reason the films are so good is because they were directed by Sharon Maguire, who was Jude. Jude was based on Sharon, not Shaz. And that group was Helen Fielding, Sharon Maguire, Tracy McLeod and Richard Coles, Reverend Richard Coles. He was Tom. And obviously he had been in the Communards, so that was the band that he was in. And he became a vicar. So they were having, they were having deep conversations. These are smart, deep, emotionally open people who are, I was going to say being shallow, I don't mean being shallow, but who still want to fall in love and have a nice meal and see each other and have a gossip. And mm. I don't know, I think, I think, because she, because Shaz was one of those mates, though that group of friends feels very real. Mm. I feel I can identify with Shaz's character, to be honest. Like, I feel like I'm one of those straight talkers in the group, like, just put it on the table, say it as it is. Yeah. We well, every group needs one. You're like uh, Shazza to my Bridget, Bram. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I do swear a lot, so... <laughs> it's a great, great... Great role and I think a great way to be. But I think the other thing that struck me about Shaz is that she wasn't that good at relationships. So she can really, she can see right to the heart of the problem. I'm not saying this is you, by the way, obviously, but um, <laughs> it, I mean, she can see right to the heart yeah, of the problem. And I mean, I, I know lots of people like Shaz and she right to the heart of the, I mean, it, there's someone who's now a very successful screenwriter who I can just see in her 20s chain smoking and blowing smoke at the house hamster. <laughs> that had elephantitis of the text testicle and, you know, <laughs> announcing, <laughs> announcing how things were. And, you know, because she's so perceptive, she's an amazing screenwriter, but I don't think she's settled down because actually, you know, getting involved in the complicated flirting and not saying what you mean of getting together with someone like trying to be your best self. She just, I mean, I imagine Shaz could never quite do that. But I was so happy in the third one that she met someone because there was talk at one stage that Shaz was dying of cancer. I was like, oh, oh no. no. Oh, gosh. That'd be so bad. I mean, it, you know, it'd be good. It'd be, it'd be realistic, but it'd be so disappointing. I was going to ask you, actually, when you were talking earlier about enjoying the fact that films have 
stories with beginnings and middles and ends. Obviously, the Bridget Jones's baby, um, which followed many years after, did Shaz end up where you thought she would have been after you filmed the second film? I mean, it really could have gone any which way for Shaz. I was just, I was just very pleased it had gone that way for her. I think you know from the third one you, you can and I don't think it makes it any less good a film. But the third one, I think you can really see the thoughts about feminism and women's role in the workplace and women's aspirations. It's no longer okay by 15 years later to have someone who's wearing short skirts to work and not taking their job terribly seriously. Mm. Um, and so Bridget has become successful. And so she needed a workplace friend. And I think that's also true that, you know, the Miranda character, brilliantly, brilliantly played by Sarah Soleimani, that you can... There's a lot of women in film and telly who never got married because the job... Too demanding. ...takes you for long, long hours, you know, and there's no... I mean, people are working to change that, but it's just not friendly to having children. I and mean, I, I would have... Yeah, I mean, it's just not, not easy. I was really lucky to have the Summerfield years to see me through with my... <laughs> Boneless leg of pork, half price. I was very, very, very lucky to land that job. But it's quite, you know, it's quite challenging. And so, yeah, there are a lot of women in their 40s and 50s who've, you know, never met anyone and, or they have met people but it hasn't worked out and they've consequently done very well at work. I can't remember the question now, I'm just... Well, I was just thinking just some... I mean, dating's hard work, isn't it? It really is. Um... But something I wanted to, to ask you, um, obviously working with Renee Zellweger, she gets uh, an Academy Award nomination for the first film and obviously has gone on to even you know bigger heights with Judy recently, for example. Tell us what it was like working with her on set. Well, she was in character. The first series, she was in character the whole time. So it was just like hanging out with Bridget. She was in no way difficult or temperamental, was just absolutely lovely carried a Tobler, the first film she carried a Tobler in under her arms most of the time and the second <laughs> film it was a Dunking Donuts I think and um, she was just completely delightful but the thing that was weird was when she stopped, I mean I think later she said she went on the pill, went on a contraceptive pill to make her put on weight more and so oh, wow. she came off that I mean, it was quite well documented, I think, at the time. She just lost a lot of weight very, very quickly. And she started to lose it in the last week of filming. And then at the wrap party, spoke in Texan. And that was a bit of a shock because she was so different from Bridget. And I realised I'd made... Or I felt like I'd made friends with Bridget, but not with Renee. You know, that's something that can happen when people are really brilliant and serious about their job. And then the third... By the third film, I'd say we were proper friends, and we had a lot of quite intense chats about politics. Oh, interesting. And the place of celebrities in politics. And, yeah, and genome sequencing. She's really, really smart. And I was just starting to make my documentary about World Without Down Syndrome. You know, I'd just been to the States and met a load of genomics experts, and she knew about it, knew some of them. Yeah, just quite a different relationship from the first one. We were all older and more battered by life by then. <laughs> and, and something that's interesting, that obviously it could have played out very differently, that it, it's true that you auditioned for the role of Bridget. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Unsuccessfully and quite correctly, I didn't get it. But I did do quite a few... I think I was very... 
like the character of Bridget and I felt a bit ambivalent about that. I felt I didn't want to be associated with Bridget. And I remember Sharon saying to me, there's a lot of drunk scenes, how would you do them? And I said, I might get drunk. <laughs> 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 Which is obviously not a correct not a correct answer. But at that stage, when they're looking at casting a Brit, I think it might even have been a BBC film. It was like a much smaller deal. And then once Renee was attached, she brought with her a huge amount of money. So it became an entirely different project. So oh, although really? I auditioned for Bridget Jones, if I'd done it, it wouldn't be the film that you have. It would have been a really low budget one without Hugh Grant, I imagine. And, you know, Colin Firth, yeah. Yeah. And probably without Richard Curtis. I don't know. And it has just become so iconic, hasn't it? What do you think has made it, you know, 20 years later, we are still talking about the first film and... I do really think it's the, I would say it's the, the main three characters plus Sharon Maguire. It's that combination. Because the book is good. Helen is good and clever, but she is carrying on a tradition that already existed. So there is this tradition of the ironic female diarist that probably didn't even start with Jane Austen, but you can see it in Jane Austen. Although it's not first person, it's very sort of outside observer kind of thing. And then it goes, you know, there's lots of copycats and then you get something like um, Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. That's a really brilliant society, a literary lady who marries a manager of an estate in the countryside and goes to the countryside and is trying to work out who she is. It's absolutely hilarious. There's a whole series of them. If you haven't read them, I recommend it. And um, Bridget is kind of based on Pride and Prejudice. I mean, it's plotted as per Pride and Prejudice. So it's a, a plot with um, a vehicle for the newspaper column. And then since then, you have, you know, Miranda, Fleabag, Michaela Cole. Yeah. Yeah. There is one question that I'm desperate to ask you, and, and we were we were talking about the kind of isms from um, Bridget Jones' diary, even down to the kind of having a Bridget moment or your Bridget Jones pants. But one of the questions that I just had to ask is the iconic scene where the blue soup that has leaked from the string that is meant to be the leek soup. Yeah. What was in the blue soup that made it blue, and did you have to actually eat it? I think it was just food colouring, and yes, we did have to eat it. And I don't remember eating it at all, so it must have been fine. It must have been quite uneventful. <laughs> I do remember eating the marmalade, but I don't remember the soup. I don't remember the soup being a problem, but I do remember I can, I can almost taste the marmalade today. So, uh, how do you keep a straight face in those scenes, like when you're filming them? Because they're obviously so hilarious to watch. How do you keep a focus in a scene like that? Well, I think it's hilarious to watch because nobody's laughing at the time. At the time, it does feel quite serious. <laughs> And that's why it's funny. You know, if anyone's sort of about to break, then, it, then the stakes aren't high. But the way I kept a straight face in that scene is because they didn't, get, didn't have time to get my close-up. And so um, I had to go back and shoot my bits on my own a few months later. So they just... Oh, wow. It's a lot easier. They, well, I don't know. It was pretty difficult. They lay one place at a table and give you your very own blue soup and your very own marmalade and just one bit of wall behind you decorated and the rest of Bridget's house has been stripped out and oh, really? it's just you and one light and one camera and the director going and now I need you to look to the right and now I need you to look to the left and now I need you to look at the soup so that's the magic of cinema eh? yeah absolutely 
I wanted to ask you, Sally, a plot twist question again, but keeping on the Bridget theme. Um, Shaz is, of course, this key support network to Bridget. But who's been that person to you? Um, I think, you know, like everyone, I've got a small group of much beloved friends. But my long term person, I, yeah, is my friend Jess from college. And she's the most amazing and brilliant woman. And um, yeah, she runs the British Documentary Society. And when she was at college, she came out. I mean, to herself as well, I think. And she took me for coffee and said, oh, you know, she disappeared into a room for four days with a girl from, called Liz from Seven Oaks. She came out and she said, I think, I think I'm gay. I was like, I think you are as well. <laughs> she was worried, she was worried, you know, that I was going to reject her, which of course I didn't. And um, yeah, and then I did the same thing. So I had a religious experience in my mid-twenties and I, took, I was terrified of telling her because what's worse than saying you've become a Christian to a lesbian? Like, and anyway, she, I said, oh, you know, I've got something to tell you. And she said, what is it? And I said, I think I might be a Christian. And she roared with laughter and she said, you've picked the only thing that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> and then she held off getting married. And, and then I was the celebrant at her wedding. And so she married Beadie a couple of years ago in Margate in, in a junkyard that we did up and I was the vicar. And so there, was one of the, there were four different costume changes uh, or, or themes. You could go wearing a number of different things, but one of them was double denim. And so I had a triple denim cassock and uh, robe. So I had a white denim dog collar, uh, a dark denim dress, whatever it's called, and a, a mid denim stole and I married my best friend in a junkyard and it was one of the happiest, happiest uh, times for all of us. Yeah, it was oh, sounds, sounds great. Yeah, triple, it really blooming was denim. fantastic. Not, not, I mean, the triple denim was good, um, but everyone, <laughs> you know, so one of the themes was um, nautical because it was in Margate and uh, a load of people came with all four outfits. You know, nautical showstopper double denim. I can't remember the other. The mental image I have in my head right now of that is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so lovely, I can't tell you. And the pair of them are just wonderful. And um, whenever things, you know, if, if ever I've got a real problem, I ring Jess and Beady now. Oh, great. That was really lovely. Yeah, the two of them now. I love it. I think definitely, like, those people that have known you, and, and like you say, like, life being about different chapters, it's those people that evolve with you through the different chapters, and, and no one, I suppose, Absolutely. knows which way their story's going to go, but when you can grow alongside people, they're the, the best sort of friendships. And that is the really great thing about getting older. I mean, we're, we're, you know, flooded with reasons why it's terrible to get older, but the really great thing about getting older is that you your friendships are just much deeper and more amazing you've been mm. through so much more together and there's no danger that you know I think in your 20s and 30s there's always the danger you might do something terrible and they'll disappear but by the time you've got to you know well I just turned you know mm. 50 in lockdown by the time you get to 50 and you've been mates with someone since you were 18 and you've done lots of terrible things and they've forgiven you and the reverse and you just forgive each other and you know it's great I love that yeah couldn't agree more. Um, so we've got one final plot twisty question for you. For all your fans out there, is there anything that um, they would be surprised to know about you? I don't, I don't, that sort of depends what their 
view of me would be. I think because um, different people like different things, I don't think there'd be one fact that surprises all of them. Because if I gave you a sort of filth fact, <laughs> there'd be a whole load of people that went, I, I'm not at, the best type of at fact. all surprised. And then if I gave you a religious fact, there'd be a load of people out there who would go, I also am not at all surprised. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's not surprising that I can do sign language. Am I quite boring? It's not that I'm quite a boring person, though I probably am, but it's the fact that I've done oh, so many all. random things. Not at all. Like, the most surprising thing about me would be that I have uh, consistently meditated every single day for the last six months. That is surprising because I tend oh, to be... Oh, wow, that's cool. I tend to be quite fad... That's amazing. ...quite faddy about things and give them up quickly. You've stuck with but it. But that's, that's not at all amusing and I'm sure not the kind uh, of fact... No, about. but how have you found that? Because I've been interested just in terms of... Completely I, I know, brilliant. So I signed up to Insight Timer, which is where the world's panicking and lonely people go <laughs> to share <laughs> tips about how they manage their terror, as far as I can tell. And about 90% of the things are just... Well, not 90%, maybe 70% are, are a bit weird. I mean, we ended up doing it the last film I did we ended up doing it uh, in the makeup bus in the mornings sometimes to make ourselves laugh and there was this one woman who was like you know connecting with your divine feminine you are walking in a space it can be any space it's a beach you are walking in any space it can be any space it is a forest and you're following the path it can be any path it's small you come to some water it can be any water imagine the water it's a lake you are, and now you are taking off your clothes. <laughs> We're all like, what? And a beautiful woman with long dark hair. She's taking off her clothes as well. And you turn it off. Go, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of guided meditation I was after. But I think the sort of the breathing and getting back into your body is really, 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 really good. And I, I've just found it really. I've got quite a monkey mind, and I found myself much more able to concentrate and I've been way more productive than I had been in the last I've done the whole thing saying we don't need to worry about being productive but normally I get so distracted I don't finish anything and I have actually handed in two scripts so I think that's proof wow. that it works highly recommend yeah that's really interesting I might have to uh take it up myself I wanted uh, to ask you one more question obviously we've spoken about the 20th anniversary of Bridget Jones. Um, and, and you alluded to uh, shows and uh, Fleabag and Michaela Cole and so on. Um, how, how do you think comedy has evolved in that time? Well, I, I mean, is it, is it evolving or is it just changing, reflecting the culture it's in? But the most obvious thing for me is that women are now allowed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's allowed to be more than one show and people have a hope and expectation that women will be funny. I mean, when I started, I used to meet up in a pub with Sue Perkins and a girl called Jane Busman. And we were the only people we knew of our age writing. And there were about four people on the circuit. Jenny Eclair, Ronnie Ancona, Joe Brand. And there was hardly, there was hardly anyone doing it. And... I mean, there were sort of two ways of being a woman. One was to kind of pretend to be a man. And the other one was to say Victoria, you know, to be Victoria Wood and to say, you know, brand names a lot, like Granary Bap and play the piano. <laughs> and now it just seems that although 
there definitely isn't equality and that progress is much, is glacially slow for women compared to men. I mean, I've just written a sitcom with a younger guy, much younger guy, who is brilliant, but it struck me, we submitted this and he had, you know, an email back and a possible answer within 24 hours. Whereas, you know, with women's stuff, you, you normally wouldn't get a response for three or four months. And then the response might be, oh, we've got a women, women's show already or something like that. So it is still really different, but I think, you know, there are obviously loads more women doing it. I love M Melanie Gedroyd's show, it's her and Lou Sanders. And that's great. Like two women hosting a primetime comedy show. Yeah, absolutely. Just that, mm. that really wouldn't have happened. It would have been a morning show. Well, it would have been a light, light lunch or whatever Mel and Sue were hosting back then. Yeah, we, we interviewed them and spoke to them about that. That was, that was good fun. Yeah. Uh, Sally, thank you so much for coming on Plot Twist. It's been a really fascinating chat. Um, Sorry if I was a bit serious. Not at all. It's a great balance. No, it was brilliant. Well, very, very nice to meet the pair of you and just sad it's not in person. I know. I wish I really I wish know, we could have done. I know. such a shame. Shall I tell you what I really miss? <laughs> <laughs> I, t I told you I'd gone feral. I'm beginning to really miss those sort of, you know, those white cups and saucers of spilled coffee that you stand around holding awkwardly trying to remember people's names. <laughs> <laughs> I even miss that. I even miss that. <laughs> not long to go, not long to go. On the final countdown. Final countdown, OK. Wow, big thank you to the straight-talking Sally Phillips. I, I do love this job, Fran, as you know. We didn't know what to expect coming into this interview. Are we going to get Sally the comedian or the serious actress? But the level of insight and the Bridget Jones gossip was amazing. Yeah, I loved it. And I think it's great because she really spoke open and honestly about mm. not just some of her kind of personal plot twists that she's had in her own life, but actually the impact that they've had on her career and her approach to her career. So I thought it was really, really, as ever, interesting. Yeah, because you don't always think about the impacts that these sort of events have, but they are so you know profound. But then also talking about Renee Zellweger and working with her and what that was like behind the scenes. I mean, that's I just love that level of insight. You can imagine just rocking up to the rap party being like, oh, everyone's in tow, here's Renee. And then she just busts out a heavy Texan accent, having spoken an English accent for the entirety of filming. You'd be like, where's this come from? What on earth? My mind is blown. Uh, but I definitely think that I'm also going to start walking around with a Toblerone under my arm everywhere I go, because who wouldn't want a Toblerone? I mean, it's funny you say that, Fran, but as you know, this year I recently turned 30 a few weeks ago was the first time ever I've tried a Toblerone. Are you joking? No. Of all the things that you've said that are tragic, that is probably up there in the top well, three. Well, having tasted it, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the other thing I wanted to talk about was how Sally spoke about her relationship with her best friend and oh, how that's that. evolved over the years. Because I think it was really poignant to talk about that in relation to Bridget Jones, because obviously the film at its heart is all about loving and acceptance of the person just as they are, as the famous line says. And I think her talking about how they've both had these sort of big moments in their life where they've had worries about what the other person thinks, but actually it's just evolved and made them stronger. And as she said, I loved that line where she said, when you've been friends with someone for that long, you no longer fear sort of rejection from them. Oh, it was lovely. It is lovely. And I suppose it is part of that journey you go on as friendship. And friendship was the sort of 
for me, one of the key themes from the interview, not only just because of Shazza and her role with Bridget, but obviously what Sally spoke about from her own perspective, which was really lovely. Yeah, that was great. Now, Tom, we've only got a couple of years under our belt. Hopefully we'll make it to 20 and we'll continue to evolve. But watch this spacing. <laughs> well, let's watch this space, Fran. It's, uh, it's going to be a tight run thing. <laughs> <laughs> a huge thanks again to Sally, though. I, I really enjoyed that. And, and there you go. That's the first episode of Series 3 of Plot Twist. What a way to kick off. And we will see you next week. Ciao.